Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Jessica Cunningham of NUI Maynooth. Her paper was entitled... The fashion and price that will wait upon your lordship for direction. The acquisition of domestic silver in early 17th century Ireland. Silver, or plate as it was commonly referred to, was acquired in numerous ways in the early 17th century. Through gifts and bequests, through second-hand purchase, in lieu of payment, and of course through the direct patronage of goldsmiths. What I want to address here is this relationship and method of acquisition by Irish consumers. A letter from the London goldsmith Nathaniel Stoughton to George Fitzgerald, 16th Earl of Kildare, written in August 1632, brings this into greater focus. Stoughton wrote, For the present, I cannot so suddenly provide the plate without ready money. (laughs) Only, my lord, tell me whether the candlesticks shall be all one size or no, and how near they shall be to those I sent, my lord of Cork, by Sir Edward Bagshaw or whether the three dozen spoons shall be all of one size, all of a fashion, because we make six pounds a dozen. But the fashion and price I will wait upon your lordship for direction. And I intend, God willing, against Christmas, to add to the sum your lordship oweth me already. Let me entreat your honour to make me over money by exchequer, and I will be sure to furnish you with salt, bacon and ewer, tankards, beer bowls and what else I shall be enjoined by your honour to do. This letter is rare and wonderful, and I'm very grateful to Dr. Breed McGrath for drawing my attention to it in her and Aidan Clark's recently published Kildare Letter Book. The letter highlights numerous features which characterised the consumption of silver by the Irish elite in the early 17th century, and these will inform the structure of this paper. It shows that fashion was an important aesthetic and financial concern of both patron and craftsmen. It exposes the lengthy delays experienced by patrons commissioning items of silver and the complicated financial arrangements needed to supply payment. These, in turn, invite investigation as to why it was necessary for Kildare to source these items from a goldsmith in London and not from one closer to home. The letter indicates the wide range of domestic vessels and utensils produced by the goldsmith and used in households, the lengths to which consumers went to source negotiate, purchase and transport them were considerable, and retracing these sheds light on a buoyant consumer society, which, I will show here, gave rise to the flourishing of the silver craft in Ireland in the later decades of the 17th century. Nathaniel Stoughton's stock and trade was dining silver. He boasts his ability to furnish Kildare with spoons, salt cellars, bacon, which was a type of serving platter or dish, ewers, tankards and beer bowls. The goldsmith had previously supplied Kildare's father-in-law, Lord Cork, with candlesticks and the Great Earl's Diaries also deal that Stoughton previously supplied him with 48 dinner plates and several ewer and basin sets. Cork knew well that silver was perfectly suited to the task of advertising the wealth, taste and status of its owners. Two years earlier, in 1630, Cork had advised Kildare, who was also his ward, that he should learn to be a good husband of your own purse and that he had many things to do with money as the building of all your houses, the furnishing of them with plate, 
beddings, hangings and household stuff. And this included Maynooth Castle, which was being restored under Cork supervision at this time. Kildare was evidently following his father-in-law's advice, both in the disbursement of his money and in the patronage of the London goldsmith Nathaniel Stoughton. Dining silver was used in Ireland both for practical and decorative purposes. Sets of ewers and basins, originally used by diners to rinse their hands after eating, were by the early 17th century uh, often presented as gifts and used for decoration and display on the buffet or sideboard. Similarly, containers for salts, which were referred to as standing salts or just salts, um, were originally practical vessels but had become more symbolic by this time. Positioned on the dining table to the right of the host as an indication of status. They were therefore visually impressive and became treasured decorative items. The 1628 inventory for Geestill County Offaly included four great silver salts, and Bunratty Castle's 1639 inventory lists uh, one great standing salt seller. For the very wealthy, the continuing ownership and display of standing salts was an expression of status which coexisted with a knowledge of and participation in novelty and fashion through the acquisition of newer and more functional plate. The most abundant item of dining silver at this time, and indeed up to the 19th century, was the spoon. Thomas Butler, 10th Earl of Ormond, listed a dozen in his 1603, while Lord Cork acquired a dozen in 1619 and 1624. Kildare, we know, commissioned three dozen from Stoughton. The prevalence of spoons also explains the converse. The absence of sets of knives and forks in the first half of the 17th century is telling and suggests that spoons were not just used for the taking of liquid-based dishes. Henry O'Brien, Earl of Thomond, had 23 spoons but only one knife and no forks at Bunratty, at least of silver. There are no forks to be found in the Earl of Cork's uh, households either, but he did own knives. He received a set among his New Year gifts in 1628. Matching sets of knives, forks and spoons were more prevalent by the end of the 17th century. Silver plates or trencher plates are found in great quantities in Ireland well before sets of flatware and cutlery were acquired. Dishes, referred to variously by their size or function, salad and bacon dishes among them, were used to serve food at the table. They were accompanied by several trencher salts, which were produced in matching sets and were positioned around the dining table in in easy reach for diners, diners. For the serving and drinking of liquids, a wide range of vessels were produced and accumulated, many of which, like the beaker, tumbler, tankard, porringer and caudal cup, were multifunctional. Beer bowls, wine cups, aquavitae cups and dram cups were 17th century vessels connected to the consumption of alcohol. The Dublin merchant Robert Fitzsimon's 1600 inventory, which listed two tankards, a goblet and an aquavitae cup amongst his plate, showed that beer, ale, wine and whisky were all consumed in his house. Purchasing new silver was not a simple task for consumers in Ireland in the early 17th century. The lack of a reliable assay system, the quality control system which ensured adherence to the sterling standard, until the incorporation of the Dublin Guild of Goldsmiths in 1637, hampered the cultivation of the craft in Ireland. In addition, the scant quantities of goldsmiths operating dictated a sparse supply of locally wrought plate while that which was being produced in Dublin and other urban centres in Ireland was considered to be unregulated and of low quality. Irish consumers favoured items of London touch, i.e. hallmarked in London, and often patronised goldsmiths in that city, as Kildare did with his patronage of the Lombard Street goldsmith, Nathaniel Stoughton. 
the young Earl's impatience to receive the plate and the goldsmith's response that ready money by exchequer would be needed to fulfil the order speaks of a time-consuming financial process with which his father-in-law was also well acquainted and which Cork's diaries described in considerable detail. And my thanks to Dr Fenlon for drawing these to my attention. Lord Cork spent enormous sums of money in the equipping of his homes in Yall, Lismore and Dublin with plate, most of which came from London. As early as 1617, he wrote that an agent brought him a silver pot out of England, and in August 1624, he also received from London a large consignment of plate weighing more than 1,000 ounces and costing over £280, and this contained plates, platters, salad dishes, silver salt, spoons and candlesticks. A year later, Cork commissioned silver from the goldsmith Thomas Wakefield in Cheapside, and in June 1628 he paid the same goldsmith the substantial sum of £800 for plate, marking his son Lewis's elevation to the title of Viscount Kilnamiki. In the early 1630s, Cork ordered from Nathaniel Stoughton several items of dining silver, and when he visited London in 1641, he patronised another goldsmith named Vaughan, from whom he purchased further items, including two silver chamber pots. This preference for London-made plate was shared by other consumers in Ireland. James Morrow Fitzandrew, an alderman of Cork City, in 1633 singles out a pair of silver goblets in his will which were brought me out of England, as he said, while the 1639 inventory of Bunratty Castle spells out the greater value of London silver. The inventory valued the English plate at a shilling more per ounce than the Irish silver. So four shillings, tenpence an ounce for the English silver and three shillings tenpence an ounce uh, for the Irish and this was a significant difference Purchasing and transporting the silver from England to Ireland was not straightforward. Silver stood apart from other luxury goods its intrinsic value was directly connected to specie and so rigorous organisation was needed at every step and no better man than Lord Cork His candlesticks which he bought, we learn from the letter were brought to Ireland by Sir Edward Bagshaw Bagshaw was employed by Cork on other occasions to arrange payments on his behalf in England and no doubt was a trusted envoy. He joined other financiers, agents and peers uh, who meticulously monitored their role in his acquisition of his luxury purchases. For example, in February 1625, Cork owed £62 to the Cheapside goldsmith Thomas Wakefield. To make that payment, he loaned his departing house guests at Lismore uh, three men, John Gan- Glanville, Cecil Bushy and Mr Godolphin, uh, he loaned them £100. The men were to repay Cork by conveying the sum directly to Thomas Wakefield when they arrived in London. Cork notes that Wakefield, meanwhile, who had already dispatched the silver to Ireland, had done so on the bond of Sir John Leake and Sir George Horsey, from which they were then to be released. On receipt of the £100, Wakefield was to retain the surplus £38, which was to be received in part payment for four euros and basins that Cork had subsequently commissioned. Transporting the silver then into Ireland necessitated neat footwork with customs. Unsurprisingly, Cork sought to minimise these extraordinary charges, which I have been unable to discover due to non-existent custom records relating to the import of silver in the 17th century. However, the amounts must have been sufficiently high, for we can read in Cork's diary that he joined forces in 1634 with other big spenders and negotiated a warrant at a cost of 40 shillings in order to avoid the search and taxation of his plate and that belonging to Lord Dunsane's Sir Gerard Lowther's and Lady Anne Parsons, as if it had been mine. Nathaniel Stoughton's reference to the fashion of the silver Cork had ordered 
how the candlestick should look and whether the 36 spoons should be uniform in pattern or not was a central concern of patrons and craftsmen alike. Firstly, it, direct, it, it directly impacted on the price, and secondly, it expressed the extent to which a consumer was in tune with culture, refinement and novelty. The letter to Kildare implies that decisions regarding the form, style and decoration, the fashion of silver, were directed by the customer. The mention of the candlesticks made for Lord Cork supplies a common reference point from which an understanding can be formed as to how near in style Kildare's candlesticks should be to those made by the goldsmith for his father-in-law. Thus, the note indicates that the spread of fashion was guided by both the exposure of consumers to the newest styles in the homes of their contemporaries, as well as the goldsmith's knowledge of and ability to replicate these current trends. The letter also shows how connected fashion was with price. The decision to instruct Stoughton to make his spoons all of a size, all of a fashion, it would seem would be the most economic decision. Decoration in silver, whether it was chased, embossed or engraved, was a costly addition and did not add to the intrinsic value of silver, which is why many consumers often chose to purchase plain, unornamented plate. The ability to afford decoration and variety of fashion in silver therefore indicated enormous wealth. Sir John Leake, working for Lord Cork in London in 1624, was sensitive to this and wrote to the Earl regarding £30 he received for purchasing a plain standing salt on behalf of the Earl. Leake wrote to uh, Cork about this uh, purchase he had to make. He wrote, It is more money than any of the greatest have in their plain salts. But there is of late a Spanish fashion salt come up and used of all, which many do put 40 ounces into it, but because I do imagine you would want to have yours extraordinary fare, I have put into your salt 60 and odd ounces and took the example by the Lady of Carlisle's and I doubt not but you would like it very well, for indeed it is a brave one. It was understood that the Earl would wish to be current and acquire a Spanish fashion-standing salt, like that used of all, instead of the usual plainer style. And I haven't found a Spanish-fashioned English-marked salt, but I found a Spanish salt, which gives you an idea of the contrast between the plain and the decorative. At the same time, he would also require the salt to be more substantial than that used by most at 60 and odd ounces so that it will be as good as Lady Carlyle's and thus mark him out for distinction. This neatly demonstrates the currency of fashion and how it was transmitted from the urban centre of England to provincial Ireland in this early modern period. So the following picture emerges from these sources relating to the consumption of domestic silver in early 17th century Ireland. There was widespread use and demand for it, there, was, there were transactions between patrons in Ireland and goldsmiths in England to, in order to fulfil this demand. There was money to pay for these objects, not just in their plainer forms, but in expensive decorative and fashionable forms too. And it was lengthy and expensive in commissioning and transporting these items t- from London to Ireland. The next step was for the development of the craft in Ireland, and this is precisely what happened in the 1630s. Records relating to goldsmiths in Dublin at this time assist in illustrating this. In 1637, a goldsmith named Nathaniel Stoughton was admitted to the franchise of Dublin Corporation by special grace and on payment of fine, and this indicates the likelihood that he was an immigrant. He joined dozens of other craftsmen who immigrated to Dublin at this time, several of whom were goldsmiths. It is no coincidence that in that same year, 1637, the Dublin Guild of Goldsmiths was incorporated by Royal Charter. Nathaniel Stoughton was listed as one of the goldsmiths named in the charter of the newly formed Dublin Goldsmiths Company, and a decade later he was recorded as Master Warden of the company. 
Stoughton, with other immigrant English goldsmiths whose records of apprenticeship and freedom I have found in the London Goldsmiths Company ledgers, consciously modelled the governance and operations of the Dublin Company on the London Company, wishing to replicate its authority and quality control system in their country of adoption. The assay records showed that the items Stoughton assayed in Dublin were similar to those produced by Nathaniel Stoughton in London. Wine cups, beer bowls, porringers, tumblers and spoons were presented by him to be tested and hallmarked. So was this the same man? Yes, probably. It is plausible, given Stoughton's history of commissions from Lords Cork and Kildare, that the goldsmith was encouraged to move to Dublin in the mid-1630s in order to take advantage of the opportunities presented by the demands of its resident wealthy elite. Lord Cork's instigation of industries was already apparent within other crafts at this time, for which craftsmen from England relocated to Ireland. It is thought that Cork was behind the establishment of three glasshouses in Munster in the early decades of the century, many of which were manned by craftsmen who came from England, France and the Low Countries. Cork's role in the development of ironworks in the province was also renowned, and these too were operated by Dutch and English men. The prospect of sourcing silver of good quality from goldsmiths working to London standards in Ireland was an appealing, expedient prospect, and Cork's role in encouraging this is credible. He took a chance on another Dublin-based immigrant English goldsmith, William Cook, in 1634, when he commissioned two flagons and four silver buttons. Lord Cork specified that the plate should be as good and fine silver as any plate of London touch, and he agreed with Cook that should the silver fail to meet the sterling standard, the goldsmith was to forfeit £20. Cook's workmanship was obviously of sufficient quality and the plate of correct standard. For the following year, Lord Cork returns to him with a further commission. In conclusion, quantitative analysis of the Dublin records showed that these individual experiences of Lord Kildare and Nathaniel Stoughton and of Lord Cork and William Cook tally with trends of the period. Less than 10 goldsmiths per decade were admitted into the Dublin Goldsmiths Guild in the period 1600 to 1629, when the preference among Irish consumers was to patronise London goldsmiths. This number more than doubled in the 1630s, when the beginnings of a shift among craftsmen and consumers to creating and patronising a local industry can be seen. It laid the foundations for the remarkable development of the craft in the second half of the century. In the 1650s, over 60 new goldsmiths entered the craft in in Dublin, and in the years following the restoration, on average 40 goldsmiths were admitted per decade. And this does not include many journeymen, quarter brothers as they were called as well, um, apprentices and so on. A significant shift among Irish consumers towards patronising Irish goldsmiths is corroborated by data supplied in the assay books of the Dublin Goldsmiths Company. An annual average of less than 1,000 ounces was recorded up to 1650. In the 1660s, this yearly quantity had increased tenfold to 10,000 ounces, and by the mid-1690s, this had grown to nearly 20,000 ounces. For the assay year 1698-99, a total of 45,743 ounces were submitted to the Dublin Goldsmiths Company for assay. This thriving industry for expensive, fashionable luxury goods was developed by numerous economic, political and demographic factors, but its foundations I have proposed here were formed by consumers like Lord Kildare and Lord Cork, whose patronage of goldsmiths in London drove the concerted organisation of the craft in Dublin and indeed other Irish urban centres from the 1630s onwards. Thank you.